Hey, it's a real pleasure to have Josh Bidwell here with us this morning, guys. Uh, when we first planned this, we had no idea how great of a weekend this was going to be with the Super Bowl and all that. And uh, it's just wonderful to have Josh here. He's a native of Winston, Oregon. Anybody ever been to Winston? Yeah, all right. About 3,400 people or so. Yep, about that. Okay. He went on to become, uh, after being there, he went on to become one of the best punters in, at that time, what was the Pac-10. Uh, he's named the All-Pac-10 first team after a season when he punted, punted for an average of nearly 50 yards per kick. Amazing. And then he went on to a 12-year career in the National Football League with Green Bay, Tampa Bay, and Washington, which included a selection to the NFL Pro Bowl. And his longest punt, which we referred to this morning, was 76 yards. And that was not with an underinflated football, right? <laughs> hey, you already know he's an author. We were handing out his book. Uh, he's the founder of the Josh Bidwell Foundation, whose main beneficiaries are Young Life, Youth Sports, and the Community Cancer Center. And he'll explain that a little bit more uh, later when he comes up here to talk. But, guys, he's, he's a father. He's a husband. He's a chaplain for the Oregon Ducks football team. But best of all, he's a brother in Christ. Let's welcome him. Josh Bidwell. Thanks, buddy. Man, how are you doing? Yeah? Are we out of the coma? I got to admit, when I sing after a meal, I yawn. So if you guys thought I was up here crying, I wasn't. I was yawning. So um, anyway, I, uh, I'm thrilled to be here and share with you guys. Um, what God's done in my life, but uh, I want to build on the theme that um, athletes are idiots, especially uh, football players. Weren't those the funniest quotes ever? Ron and I were talking about it. He goes, I'm sure you've heard those before. I said, yeah, but it never stops making me laugh because those were actually said seriously by somebody. We say them in jest now, but Norman Einstein, are you kidding me? Come on. What kind of an idiot is that? Um, so... I want to tell you one story. It's the funniest story I'd ever... I'll tell you two stories because I have a hurt shoulder right now. I'm about ready to have surgery. I'm getting to that age now where my conversations shift from my kids to my own ailments. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And I, I know I'm opening up Pandora's box. I'm going to meet a bunch of you afterwards and say, you think that, son, look at this right here. I have a scar from... But anyway, I, I have a hurt shoulder. And when I was at Green Bay, uh, Pepper, Dr. Pepper, okay, that's his name, Pepper, that's his name. He had been a uh, medical trainer for a long time. He was our head trainer at Green Bay Packers. He's still there to this day. When uh, Green Bay went up and, and blew it against Seattle, I went up to the game and got a chance to see him again. But uh, he was telling me a bunch of stories because he used to work for the Jets, the Giants, all these guys, Miami Dolphins. He's been everywhere. And he would tell me stories about athletes. And I always you know, would sit down with him and go, will you listen to some of these guys? What are they going to do when football's over? They can't even say a sentence clearly, right? And we'd sit over and he goes, let me tell you a couple stories. So here's two of the stories he told me. One was, when we have a game on Sunday, we have Monday afternoon, okay, we have to come in in the morning for uh, some meetings and then we're done, and Tuesday off. So if you're hurt in the Sunday game, that's going to require any type of modified Wednesday practice or Wednesday workout, you're required to come in for treatment, medical treatment on Monday and Tuesday. So what do guys do? Well, I didn't know I was hurt on Monday and Tuesday, right? So this guy comes in on Wednesday morning, and he's trying to get out of Wednesday practice. And he goes in, he goes, Pepper, man, I don't know what happened. I felt great after the game. That's always the opening line for Pepper. I felt great after the game. I don't know what happened, but, you know, I woke up this morning, and I could only lift my arm this high. But yesterday, I could lift it all the way up to here. <laughs> Pepper goes, get to your meeting, you're practicing today. But this is my favorite one. We have weigh-in, okay? And I, I think you've probably heard a little bit about the fact that we have to, to weigh in um, throughout the year. If you're overweight, and our particular fine was $1,100 per day per pound. So if you came in 10 pounds over just on that one day and you were 9 pounds the next and 8 the set, you're losing a lot of money every day. So Thursday would roll around. Thursday and Friday were our weigh-in days. Thursday, Pepper was telling me that just like we do, we'd walk right into our locker room. You know, most of us would strip down to our skivvies, and we'd stand on there because we didn't want to be over. And this guy walked in, and he was huge. He was like, he's one of the biggest guys on the team. You know, he had long dreads. He walked in, and he's got this leather jacket on that weighs as much as my kids combined. 
right? These big boots on, and he walks up, and he just stands on the scale, right? And looks at Pepper, and Pepper's like, at least step, you know, take the jacket off so I have an idea of what you weigh. I mean, come on, right? And he gives him a little bit of grief, and he steps back, and takes his jacket off, puts it on his arm, and steps back on the scale. (laughs) So... That's what I dealt with in the locker room on a daily basis, right? <laughs> you know, there were some fun stories, though, too. I, I, people want to ask, what are, your, what are your most memorable memories? And there's a lot of different memories that I have. But if people want to know about Brett Favre, he's still a little bit relevant right now, even though Aaron Rodgers is taking over. But my favorite Brett Favre story, because football, you know, it, in the NFL, it's a job, but it's still a game as well. And Brett made football so much fun. He would... He was very, very serious. I mean, he took his craft seriously. You can't be a Hall of Famer or not. But he also did a lot of things that uh, made it fun. And there were also times during the games when he would do silly things. You know, he would, I'd be running out on the field and he'd try to trip me, right? Because he left. He's coming off on fourth down and running out. And he'd run over and he'd stick his foot out. And I'd have to jump over. I'm like, what if you actually tripped me? And I broke an ankle or something, right? He's like, oh, Bidwell, you're such a sissy. (laughs) But there was a game when we played um, early in my career. We went out to Buffalo. And you guys remember that old AstroTurf. It's not the stuff that looks like grass now. That stuff's okay. Um, I like that a lot better than the old stuff. The old stuff is like what everybody down in Arizona has on their front lawn, right? Or the the steps that they have. It's that fake turf. It's carpet. That's what we had um, out at Buffalo when I was playing. We played them the first game of the year um, a number of years ago. And Buffalo, of course, is very hot. And it's very humid. So we went, up, we went up there. The turf will radiate the heat exponentially from what everybody else is going to feel, even in that hot day in the stands. So on this particular day, if you looked over, there was a little clock. It was a thermometer on the side. If you looked over, it said 132 degrees. I mean, I'm a punter who's sitting on cooled seats, and I was hot. So that tells you it was a really bad day. Brett's out there in the fourth quarter, and this guy, I thought he was going to die. Okay, Brett Favre, he's, he's got a strong arm. He's the toughest guy, one of the toughest guys I've ever met, but he's not one of the fastest guys I've ever met. Okay, his feet were this long, all right? <laughs> he looked like he was running with fins on. Now, what's going to happen with Brett is when he rolls out to his right side, he typically is going to be at the same pace as that 590-pounder behind him. But Brett was so tired at the end of this game, he was rolling out right on this particular third down play, and he's looking back, he keeps looking back, and he's seeing that this monster back here, right, foaming at the mouth, right, he is ready to eat his lunch, is catching up to him. And so Brett keeps looking back, and he's losing about three yards for every yard he's going to the right. And what do you do in this place? What do we always scream at Russell Wilson? Throw it away, right? Well, Brett's rolling out right, and he keeps looking back, and he's looking back, and he's losing ground, and he loses about 15 yards, and he runs out of bounds. That was odd, but what was more odd was when he dropped the ball, and he turned around, and he hugged the guy that was chasing him, who played for the other team, okay? And I remember that struck me. I'm like, what is that? I don't, okay, so it's fourth down. I run out there, and I punt a 90-yarder like I always do. (laughs) Tell your friends. And when I went back off the field after Brett got some oxygen and he's sitting there, he's still dying, I remember I go, Brett, what was the deal, man? Why did you hug that guy? Did you grow up with him? Did you play with him in college? Did, you know, what was the deal? Is he your long-lost brother? And he goes, no, man. I knew he was going to catch me, and if he tackled me from behind, he was going to break my ankle. So I kept telling him, don't tackle me, I won't throw it. Don't tackle me, I won't throw it. Because that guy will get credited with a sack if he runs him out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage. So they both win. Brett gets to live, and he gets a sack. That is an honest-to-God true story. That was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. So anyway, that's, uh, that's Brett Favre. I had a lot of fun um, out in Green Bay. That was uh, you know where I first got drafted, and then went down to Tampa, and that was a special time that I'll talk about in a little bit too. And then um, had a, a surgery on my kicking leg and tried one more year with the Washington Redskins and um, made it half through, halfway through that year and, and it's, um, it was a major hip repair and you know when you're kicking and your hip is getting stretched to the max uh, it just kind of flared up and, and had some issues but um, I always thought it was funny when when I moved uh, or got signed by the Washington Redskins I never played on the west coast I'm from the west side of the country anyway I'm from the west coast and I never played over here I played maybe four or five road games and I can't tell you 
how many calls I got from people congratulating me on signing with Washington so I would be closer to home. <laughs> I looked at a map. And I think I'm at least four inches closer to home in Washington than I was in Tampa. So I, I guess they were right. Isn't that funny? They all thought, I'm like, what do you, th do you really think this whole time for the past 70 years that they've been up in Washington State? But everybody's like, oh yeah, all right. Anyway, um, well, I want to start out here and uh, I, hopefully the slideshow worked. Nobody came down to say it didn't, but I uh, put together kind of some memories that I want to take you guys through and explain uh, before I kind of talk further about what God's done in my life. But uh, that's me right there. Believe it or not, I used to be a girl. <laughs> yep. Don't go too fast. That's me, still a girl. But you can see what's on my right leg there. Can you guys see that well? A cast, okay? So I'm four years old, uh, just, well, just shy of four years old. I met Mrs. Russell. Mrs. Russell was my babysitter. Uh, my parents worked, and so I had to go to Mrs. Russell's. And what do we do as little boys? We climb trees, we hang from the branch, and we drop, right? That's just what we do. Why would, I mean, what else would you do when you're a little boy? I'm hanging from a branch when Mrs. Russell comes out and goes, Joshua, you get down right now. I've been getting down all morning, Mrs. Russell. I'm glad to. I let go, snap. That large bone in my leg snapped in two. Mrs. Russell threw up because she heard it on her way over to me throwing up because I felt it, right? So that's me. I'm still a girl. My mom always said, you had the most beautiful hair. That is the worst compliment you could ever give a young boy, isn't it? I would kill for that compliment right now, though. Okay, next slide. There's where I grew up. I grew up outside of Winston, Oregon, 10 Mile, Oregon. Um, we have somebody that I grew up with in 10 Mile that uh, everybody forgot about me and only knows about him now. He's a Samoan safety for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Troy Polamalu. Troy Polamalu and I grew up together. He, I, this is my single wide trailer right here that I grew up in in 10 Mile. I had about one neighbor that was within a mile. I loved it. It was so much fun. You can see the direct TV dish there my dad was building. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, see, there's two in this picture because I had a TV down in my room too. And these things kept getting taller every year, but it just made the one channel we got a little less fuzzy every year. So I don't know. My dad was holding out for that, but uh, yeah, Troy and I got a chance to grow up together. He's five years younger than I am, so we didn't play together on the same high school teams. Um, however, we did grow up uh, playing pickup games together, and Troy, he was raised by his aunt and his uncle who uh, adopted him, and his cousins were my age. So Troy was always around, and he was always the first pick, which is really funny because we're five years older, and we would, I mean, we would claw and scratch and say, who gets to pick first in this pickup basketball game? We'd beat each other up for it. And then instead of picking the older kids, I want Troy. <laughs> you know, he's this big, and he's going to score on us all day long. So that's my, uh, that's my childhood home right there. You can go to the next slide. There's me uh, in fifth grade. That is actually not a picture of one of my teammates in the background. But that's the field that we played on. So we actually played on fields that got hayed in the summer. And so for football, that's what we had to do. And I got a chance to play quarterback growing up. I always wanted to be Dan Marino. Uh, he was my biggest uh, hero as a player um, growing up. But as uh, time would have it, I would move on to play other positions. But uh, that was a lot of fun. I have some good memories there. So if you want to move on to the next slide, there's me at the University of Oregon. You can tell that was from the 10-yard line. So this one was only 80 yards. <laughs> but... Uh, had a lot of fun at Oregon. Oregon was very, very good to me. You can see on the next slide uh, what Oregon brought my way. That's my beautiful wife, Bethany. Uh, Bethany's a huge part of my story, and I'm going to get into uh, that a little bit later. But we met at a uh, athlete's Bible study that we had on campus, and it's actually one of the athlete Bible studies that I'm helping to facilitate now as I'm back on campus full time. But that's a great place to meet women, young men. <laughs> Let me just tell you. The big joke was, people said, yo, you met at a Bible study on campus? I said, well, yeah, I used to lead a single women's Bible study. <laughs> All the guys laughed, and the girls were like, really? You're so gross. <laughs> well, I'm kidding, but that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Anyway, Bethany and I met uh, there, and then this next picture is my dad on uh, draft day. So April of 1999, I was able to, to have the best season a punter had um, in the uh, NCAA football that year. And I got drafted by the Green Bay Packers in 1999. This was a fun deal because this was out of my best friend's family's house. So my best friend's family helped raise me. 
They were a great family who loved the Lord. They're a big part of my story in Christ. So I, back then, it was just two days of draft. You know, They didn't stretch it out for four and a half months like they do now. So it's just two days of draft. And the second day of draftees, don't go to New York and hold up a big, you know, nobody cares about the punter that just got drafted, right? So the next day, I'm thinking I'll get drafted, maybe. But I wasn't going to have a draft party because I had a lot of former Duck teammates that threw draft parties and didn't get drafted. <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, hey, man, good luck. Uh, I got a job opening down at, you know, wherever if you want to come. But I wasn't going to do that. And the fact that punters didn't always get drafted every year, I was a little bit nervous about that scenario too. So I knew I wanted to be out of town. And so what I was doing about 10 minutes before this picture was taken was in the background was our wiffle ball field. We were passionate wiffle ballers. We built a field. We cut it. We maintained it. We had a mound. We had a fence. That's what we did. So I'm out there playing home run derby with my best friend, and I get a call. My dad runs out and goes, Josh, there's a uh, man on the phone who wants to talk to you. And I figured, okay, it's probably somebody. So I walk in, and he says, hey, Josh, this is Coach Steve Ortmeyer. He's the special teams coach for the Green Bay Packers, and he and I had met about a month before this. Coach Ortmeyer came out to Oregon to work me out as a one-on-one -on -one workout session, and it was a great workout session, but I, know that, I knew that he was going to one other person's uh, school to work them out too. So when I got this call, I thought, oh man, you got to be kidding me. So I walk in there and he says, this is Steve Ortmeyer. I say, hey coach, good to hear from me. He goes, hey, uh, what are you doing, Josh? <laughs> I go, actually, I'm playing home run derby with my best friend on our wiffle ball field. Wow, that's weird. <laughs> that's what he told me. And he goes, uh, well, listen, I don't have much time. Let me ask you a question. How would you like to be a Green Bay Packer? Like, <laughs> you know, kicking in the air and everything. But then I go, sir, that sounds great, right? Because I, I wanted to look cool. And he goes, well, good, you don't have a choice. We just drafted you. And I look over and there, sure enough, on ESPN, on the ticker down there, Green Bay Packers select Oregon punter Josh Bidwell, fourth round. So this is my dad and I afterwards. He had been a part of my story for a long time. He was the guy that was telling me, I know you want to play in the NFL. Do everything you can to give yourself an opportunity to, but be ready if it doesn't happen. And so get your education, be a great person, learn life skills, be ready to move on to something else if this isn't exactly what's going to happen. So that was fun to have him there and be a part of that. Well, here I am on this next slide, punting against uh, Dante Hall. Do you guys remember that name? Dante Hall. Okay, so what you're not going to remember is leading up to this week in the season, Dante Hall was one punt return away from the NFL record. And there's four or five games still left in the year. So the whole week, we were watching as a special teams unit on punt returns of him scoring touchdowns, finding out why is he scoring so many, what's going on, where can we stop him, but also be very, very afraid, right? <laughs> the coach, and I know many of you are saying this all the time, is just kick it out of bounds. Who here has never missed a shot in basketball? Thank you for your honesty. It is not that easy to kick a ball out of bounds at 50 yards every time. Very difficult, but we were going to try to do just that. So this is the first punt of the day, and everybody stands up when the punting unit runs out because they're actually excited. This is a home game, but they're excited to see this Dante Hall guy. I thought they were cheering for me, and afterwards I realized they weren't. Normally everybody goes to the bathroom during a punt play, right? <laughs> my wife included. So this is me. I catch the ball. I take my aim down the sideline, and I hit the best punt of my career at this point. I launch this thing down there about 58 yards. And he gets right up on the sideline, and it's going to go out of bounds if the little sucker doesn't catch it and stay in bounds, which he does. He reaches out of bounds, and he catches it like this. And then he turns and just runs up the sideline. All of my guys are on the other side of the field. I don't know where they're going. We called a right kick, okay? It's not rocket science punting a ball one way or another. It's either going to be short, but right and left. They got blocked all the way down that side. And it's just me and Dante Hall, okay? So he's sprinting right at me, and he starts to smile. <laughs> and I start to cry a little bit. <laughs> and he's coming right at me. And I don't care if you're Troy Polamalu or Josh Bidwell. If you give one of those athletes an entire field to get by you, chances are they're going to get by you. So he's running right at me with his big stinking grin in his face. And I'm just down like this, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in the record books forever. And he makes a couple moves. I'm falling over. I reach out. I get him in the junk. And he goes down. <laughs> I 
Let's close in prayer. <laughs> he wouldn't score a touchdown the rest of the year. That was his chance to have the record. And if you read his book, I didn't know this. Somebody pointed it out to me. He's really mad at me. He blames me for ruining his opportunity. I just reached out and hit what I could hit. That wasn't, I don't know what to tell you. So that was a lot of fun. I'll speed through these a little bit quicker here. Here's my dad and I in, in my locker. Um, you can go on to the next one now too. There's my beautiful wife, uh, Bethany. We got a chance to take a picture on the field uh, before the game. Look at that beautiful hair on me. Uh, next slide, I went, uh, this is me actually running out. Notice how cold it looks. It was that cold, trust me. The coldest game I ever played in, the wind chill was 25 below zero. Brutal, brutal. I don't even know how the, the, those guys do it when they're out there the whole time. And then Tampa comes calling. So I was a free agent. Mike Sherman, who was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, calls me into his office and says, hey, we got some stuff to think about in the offseason. We'll let you know. Coaches want to be coy about it. So that happens. Tampa Bay starts calling, and they've shown a lot of interest. They fly me down. I call Green Bay and tell them, listen, this is what's happening. Green Bay says, well, you know, we know you love it up here. We know that your best friend, Ryan Longwell, is, is still going to be up here. We have him under contract for a long time. So um, we're going to match whatever Tampa Bay offers you. And I'm like, Mike, that's not going to be enough. He goes, what are you talking about? Whatever they offer you, we're going to match. I go, Mike, they're offering me 80-degree days in December. <laughs> And palm trees and beaches. You can't handle it. So I ended up going down to Tampa Bay. And that was the best career move I made. You can move on. And uh, there's me launching. See, it, went, it was 80 up in Green Bay. This is 99 yards. Uh, it was a great punt. It hasn't landed yet. Um, <laughs> next picture, we see uh, Matt Bryant. He was our field goal kicker. He had a 62-yard game-winning field goal down in Tampa against the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. The longest kick I've ever held for and I take all the credit. Uh, it was a great hold. But uh, you see how tiny he is? And look at him. He's actually happy in this picture. He's the most disgruntled man I've ever met in my life. He complains every day. But got a chance to share Christ with him. A great deal. Next picture, you see uh, my beautiful wife and our two baby boys. So my boys are Brady and Aaron. They're eight and nine now. But what a neat experience. Coach Gruden was uh, very gracious to let our families come down on the sideline before games. We've got to take pictures and build memories because he knew that was a big part of our lives as well, and he didn't want to squash that out. So I appreciated that. And then here's uh, the boys watching Daddy go out there and work, which is a lot of fun. So that was, I was glad that they had a chance to see that. And then um, down in Tampa, the best years of my uh, career happened. I made the Pro Bowl in 2005, uh, went to the 2006 Pro Bowl. And so that was a lot of fun for me because the weather made a huge difference, okay? There is deflated ball situations when you're punting in zero degrees in December and 80 degrees in December. And so instead of my numbers slowly deteriorating in Green Bay because of inclement weather, they just kept going up. And so by the time I was able to uh, uh, lead the league in 2005, I got the Pro Bowl nod that year, and that was a lot of fun. But this is one of the most special pictures I've ever had. This is my dad meeting his first grandchild for the very first time at his son's first Pro Bowl. So you can imagine that was a thrill for him uh, to come out there. Of course, we had Brady in Florida, and then we flew from Florida out to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl game, and then I flew my dad from Oregon to come out to Hawaii. And this is him, me, revealing his grandson to him. So this was a special moment that he and I uh, definitely will cherish uh, forever. After uh, my time in Tampa Bay, uh, next slide, you can see we went to uh, Green, or, uh, Green Bay. <laughs> it still haunts me, sorry. We went to uh, Washington, and Washington, again, was a, a short season, but you can flip to the next one. They were nice enough to let us have some good pictures there on the sidelines. See, my boys are older now, so they think it's really cool. But they don't think it was cool for me. They're like, Daddy, did you see? And they'll name off all these other players. <laughs> you know Daddy's a teammate with them, right? And they're like, that's so cool. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So uh, next slide. There's the boys right outside. Uh, what would be my last game at, uh, as an NFL player and, of course, obviously at Washington. Uh, so they were very excited. They didn't know it was going to be Daddy's last game, but uh, they were still happy either way. And then a couple pictures here real quick of my girls. That's Grace. Uh, I was telling Ron when we were singing Amazing Grace earlier, that's my song. I sing to her every night uh, when we go to bed. And so when she, she thought I made it up, <laughs> and I didn't know that. So when we went to church and she heard it for the first time, she goes, Dad, they know your song you made for me. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of sweet. We sang that earlier. And then uh, next picture is uh, Sydney. Uh, she was the one who kept me up for the last uh, four hours of last night bless her heart, and I couldn't find a picture of her without food, 
Um, next picture are my two girls right there. And then finally, this last picture shows exactly the personalities of all my kids. <laughs> I have great kids. Sydney is, is a little bit of a handful, but I have some great kids. So anyway, um, I want to kick this off now that we can get down to what's most important in my life. You guys can tell that um, I, I find it a great privilege to have been able to enjoy some neat experiences that we all would have loved to enjoy. But uh, the bigger story of our lives is what God is doing in our lives. And anytime anybody meets me one-on-one, typically if we play a round of golf with a stranger or I just happen to get introduced to somebody, I feel like that person's a little bit disappointed to find out who I really am versus who they thought I was going to be. And I don't mean that to say that I'm a turd, but I don't really care about the stuff I'm able to do. I only care about what I do with the stuff God has granted me in my life. And what I want people to understand is who I am to the core is going to benefit you more if you know that I follow Jesus with my entire heart, with all of my passion of all my life. And so I want to start off today's talk with a question for all of us in here right now. And this is one of the most important questions I've ever been asked. I was sitting in a uh, situation much like this, and a gentleman asked us all to take an evaluation of our lives. And so what I want to do right now is ask you this next question up on the slide. What are the three most important things in your life? Normally I'd have you write them down, but for the sake of time, let's just think about them. Think about the three most important things in your life. And with these three things that make up who you are, that are just so important you couldn't imagine your life without them, I have some bad news for you. Due to circumstances beyond your control, a fire, a car crash, whatever it is, one of those three things has just been taken from you. So now, by design, you're left with the two most important things in your life. So as you're thinking about those things, it's happened again. Nothing that you could do about it. But one of those things has just been taken from you. So right now, you're left with the most important thing in your life. And if you have that grasp, that picture in your mind, can I just tell you right now that if you don't have God or Jesus or my faith or something of that nature, you still have something that you're hanging on to that's the most important thing in your life that you can lose. I remember when this was an exercise that I did, I obviously went with what most of us have gone through, family, my faith, and my health. And we could have variations of that, but those are just happened to be the things that I picked. And so when I eliminated two of those things, first one was my health. I think every one of us in here would jump in front of a truck if it would save our family member's life, would we not? So if I'm going to go down, instead of my family, I'm going to go down smiling and taking it for them. So I said... I'm going to crumple up my health and throw it away. I'm left with my faith and my family. And then when he said, you have to get rid of one more thing, obviously I wasn't getting rid of my faith, but it was a hard, hard exercise for me to say, I don't want to ever have to get in that situation where my family's gone. Do you know that that's actually happened to me? I realized when I went through this exercise that I've been left in my life with just my faith, having my health, and my family taken away. As we scroll through a couple of these slides, let me just show you a picture of my family. That's my mom, Eleanor, my uh, half-sister, Lorraine. Of course, that's me with a little less girly haircut, and that's my big, scary, awesome dad. At this uh, time in my life, I didn't really realize that our family was struggling. Everybody seemed happy. I felt like I had a pretty normal childhood. I was fairly well taken care of at this point. But what I didn't realize was that my mom at the time, and still to this day, struggled very heavily with drugs and alcohol. And her addiction was destroying our family. And it wasn't until the middle of the night one night when my dad, who worked about four miles down the road at a mill, and he worked crazy hours overnight, that he was gone. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I get a knock on my window. And it's Joshua, this is your dad. And so I 
go, oh, okay, what, what's going on? And he goes, I need you to go to the back door and open the door. And I thought he just forgot his keys. And so I walked to the back door quietly and I opened the door and he's there with a blanket and he puts a blanket around me and he picks me up and takes me to his car and that was the last day I ever spent with my family. See, I didn't realize that the addiction was destroying the family and that was the final day that I would spend with them. My parents would divorce very shortly after this moment. My sister, look how young and beautiful she was. She would run away and run away and run away at 12 years old and end up being raised by drug addicts because nobody could find where she was. I wouldn't see her for the better part of 15 years. So all of a sudden, one of the three most important things in my young life had just been taken from me, and there was nothing I could do about it. That was a hard thing for me to swallow. Fast forward down my life as I struggle through wondering what in the world just happened in that area. You can see this next slide is of me when I get to the Green Bay Packers. This is my first week right after being drafted. And you can obviously tell what I must be thinking. I'm standing there in front of my locker in a Green Bay Packers uniform, ready to go to my first practice, thinking this is just a dream come true. I can't believe I finally made it here. I can't believe me, of all people from 10 Mile, Oregon, could make it to this level. What I didn't realize was that just a few short months after this picture was taken, things would be drastically different. If you fast forward to the next slide, this is me three months later after being diagnosed with advanced stage testicular cancer. The second most important thing in my life, my health, had just been taken from me. I played three of our four preseason games at the Green Bay Packers, and then after the third game, I got called into the coach's office, and they said, great job this year. You are going to be the starting punter for the Green Bay Packers. That was a Sunday morning. We cut the other punter because there's no backups at my position. You're going to be the starting punter for the Green Bay Packers. That was on a Sunday morning. Wednesday morning, the day before our final preseason game, I go into the doctor's office. It's just right around the corner from my locker, and I say, hey, I... I just don't feel right. I feel this, you know, little lump that I don't know what's going on. I have no idea about this type of cancer. And he goes, you got to be kidding me. I said, no. He goes, come here. We got to get this checked out. Immediately, he goes, we got to go to the hospital today. So within the span of six hours that morning, I was discovered, diagnosed, operated on, and released for advanced stage testicular cancer. 23 years old. I went from the highest of highs, being drafted by the Green Bay Packers, being told I'm going to be the starting punter for the Packers, to the lowest of lows. But this is what happened when I go through this scenario. The Packers doctor said, listen, there's one type of cancer, that's, or one type of cell associated with this cancer that may, could be okay. It's called a seminoma. Seminoma is a non-spreading cancer. If we remove that tumor, you'll recover from the surgery. You'll be okay. We think this might be it. And so I kind of got my hopes up. And in the meantime, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was flying out overnight to be with me after that first surgery. So the weekend rolls on. We get a call in Monday morning because they're getting the um, uh, biopsy results back. And I sit down in this big room, and on, there's a huge table with the big G in the middle, and all of the Packers brass, all of the high-up officials on the Packers, including my doctor and the urologist at the hospital, were sitting right there, and there's two seats over here for me and Bethany. Very intimidating. And I remember I sat down in there, and the doctor looks me square in the eyes and he says, Josh, you're done. And we're going, what? Done playing, done. Can we be a little bit more specific, please? And he goes, you have all four cells associated with this cancer and it's most likely spread. Your season's over at best, but you have a fight. And I remember at this point, this is, this is where I'm going to be honest with you guys. I remember sitting in front of people who I knew knew that I was a strong follower of Jesus Christ. And I was sitting next to a woman who knew that I was a strong follower of Jesus Christ. So in my moment of despair, I put on a face. And I remember thinking, wow, I guess this is going to be a, a big struggle. Kind of a dumb phrase is that when you get that type of news. But I was trying to project a little bit more of who I wanted to be than actually who I was. So after that, I walked down and said goodbye to a couple of my teammates who had kind of been in the loop on what was going on. 
and I was going to head off to get the, the best surgeries, which ended up being here at OHSU in Portland, Oregon, thank goodness. But when I was walking down this long corridor that was about four human widths wide, hand in hand with my girlfriend, not a word was being said. And we were just walking down this, and I, I didn't know what I was even thinking at this point. We're just walking down, and I'm walking with my back on all of my hopes and dreams as I'm walking out this door. And I'm walking down the hallway, and I just collapse. My body went weak. I've never fainted before, but it was that sensation. I just fell to the ground, propped up against the wall, and started to sob like a little kid. Now, at this point in my life, I was a very strong follower of Jesus Christ. And so when people will ask me, what was so disturbing to you at this moment that that happened? And it was hard for me to understand at the moment. But what I was so afraid of was not dying. That's why I gave my life to the Lord. I know where I'm going to go in eternity. What scared me the most, and listen, men, what scared me the most was for the first time in my life, I was absolutely in control of nothing. We as men, young or old, we have control issues. God uses those to bless our lives in a lot of ways, but he also wants us to know that he is ultimately in control of our lives. We don't give control to God where we lack control in our own lives. We give control to God of our entire lives. And for this moment, everything that rang in my mind, my entire life, Josh, do this to attain this. Do this to attain this. Do this to have the opportunity to attain this. All of a sudden, I'm being told there's nothing you can do at this point. We're just going to ride this wave of treatments through and see what happens. I didn't like that. I didn't like that one bit. The worst of it would be when I came back to OHSU and I had a large incision um, put into my midsection. I had 45 lymph nodes taken out of my midsection. And when I woke up, they said, Josh, it's worse than we thought. Of the 45 lymph nodes, most of them had the cancer in it that's most likely spread to your lungs. And I remember thinking, just two weeks ago, somebody's telling me, you're probably okay. And now every time I wake up from something, it's worse than we thought. Less control than I've ever had in my entire life. And here's where I hit rock bottom. It was the middle of the night, this incision, they remove your insides, essentially, and put them back into place. And so this incision, this surgery was so invasive that even to turn right and left when I woke up would make me throw up because of the nausea and the movement before everything settled back in there. So I was just in excruciating pain, the most discomfort I've ever been in my entire life. And I was hurting inside like I've never hurt before. And it was the middle of the night, and I remember being there, my girlfriend at the time, she, was, she wouldn't leave. So she was there in the middle of the night, sleeping in a chair with her arm over my leg, just wanting to be there for me at every step of the way. And I remember at that point looking at her and just starting to weep because I knew I wasn't as strong as she thought I was. And this is the first time in my life that I've ever told God these words. I said, God, I don't know if I have what it takes to get through this. And that's where God wanted me to be. He said, I've been waiting for that question, Josh. It's about time. He goes, now sit back and listen to what I'm going to tell you. And what God did was he took me back through a clip show of my life. He took me back through all the events that took me from stage to stage to stage. And he said, Josh, you haven't been a victim of your family's destruction. You haven't been a victim of abandonment. You haven't been a victim of all this stuff. You've actually been blessed enough to go through things that are going to prepare you step by step for things to come. And then he goes, your sophomore year in high school, when you went to church accidentally with your best friend and his family, when you walked into that Sunday school coincidentally with your best friend and his brother, and when you sat down in that chair and you heard the Sunday school teacher, Krista Shigley, just by chance, say, you know what? I want to ask you all a question here today. If you were to die today, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? At that moment, I remember my ears perked up like never before. And I said, yes, what a great question. I've wanted to know this. 
I've done the things that I was supposed to do. I'm a good kid. I'm a good person. I even open my Bible sometimes and walk by it on occasion. <laughs> and she goes, do me a favor. Don't say this aloud, but I would like you to give yourself a percentage when you're at the gates of heaven on how, what percentage you would be to get into heaven. And at that point, I remember looking around the room and saying, oh, well, I'm way better than John over here, so not as good as Kevin. Oh, Sarah, she's a turd. Her parents don't know what she's doing. So I went through and rationalized, and I gave myself 80% based on my own efforts and where I thought I was as a person. She went on to explain at that very moment, you can either be 100% sure or 0% sure that you're going to heaven. And she explained to me for the first time in my life, the clearest I've ever heard it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived on this earth, a sinless example for us, that he died on the cross for my sins, which wasn't enough, but three days later he rose from the dead, rescuing me from eternal separation from God. And here's the great part about that. I didn't have to do anything but just say, thanks, I receive you, Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. All that effort I'd been putting forth my entire life to try to earn something from God because I knew he was there was so exhausting that all the weight of the world finally went off my shoulders. God took me back to that moment as I'm laying there in the hospital bed that night, and he said, Josh, why did you give your life to my son that night or that day, your sophomore year in high school? And I said, for this very moment, if you were to bring me home. He goes, exactly. And he goes, let me tell you one other thing. I'm not surprised that you're laying here right now, 23 years old, fighting for your life. I've known about this day before you were even born. I've been working you to a level of maturity to give you enough to handle this your whole life. Josh, you're not just prepared for this day. You're over-prepared for this day. Rest in me. I have a plan for you. That was a turning point in my life that I hadn't had since I gave my life to Jesus all those years ago. And that was a turning point in my fight against cancer that said, you know what? God's either going to pull me up out of that bed all the way to heaven, praise be to him, that's the ultimate miracle of who we have in Christ, or he's going to pull me back to the earth like he has so chosen to be able to share his son and his work and his goodness and his love for all of humanity for as long as he gives me breath. But what I want to do is share with you, and this is going to be quick, so I know it's getting a little bit long. I want to share with you a quick story out of God's Word, because God's Word's a lot more powerful than my story. It's in Mark 4.35, and I have it up here too, so you guys can read along with me. But this is a story that we're very familiar with. And don't do what I do sometimes. Sometimes when I see a story like, oh, I know this one, this is a good one, and then I kind of tune out. Let's learn something new from this together today because this is a story that was brought to me at the lowest of lows and meant the most to me when somebody talked me through it. Mark 4.35, and you can read along right there. The day, uh, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is an amazing story to me, because he's out there with very experienced boatsman. I, I just made that word up. Is that a word? Boatsman? Let's, let's call it a word today. Boatsman. So he, they're very experienced on the water. So experienced that they know this is not just an ordinary storm. This is a storm to be very, very concerned about. And I find it coincidental, as we've probably heard in a sermon or two, that Jesus is asleep in the stern. Have you ever been in the middle of a storm when you felt like Jesus was asleep? Are you anywhere? Can I please hear from you, God? Do you know what I'm going through? But it wasn't until they went to him that he woke up. He's always there. He was in their presence, just like he's in ours. But he's not going to force himself upon us. He wants us to be involved in that process, and I like that. But there's three lessons here. The first one 
that I think is the most crucial, and we can go to this next slide. My relationship with God requires me and requires you to be completely in the boat with Jesus. Completely in the boat with Jesus. What would have happened if one of his disciples, knowing that people were watching, that people were labeling them Jesus freaks, didn't want to get completely in the boat and decided to just kind of hang on to the side? That disciple wouldn't even made it to the worst part of the storm. As soon as a little bit of a squall came up, he's gone. He's going to lose his grip and be washed away. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not one that we can have half-hearted effort with. We can't say, I'm with Jesus on Sundays and when I'm around certain people, but I'm not on other days and around other people. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ requires us to get completely in the boat. And I find it interesting because the reason I didn't get completely in the boat was some of the dumbest reasons in the world. I was afraid people think I was weird. I was afraid that people would make fun of me. I was afraid that I couldn't do the things I needed to do while in the boat, and so I didn't get in because I was afraid I couldn't accomplish what I was supposed to. He just wants me in the boat. He's doing the driving. We have to get in the boat. And as men, that means we have to give control over to God. Scary. Second thing, when storms come up in my life, Jesus will always deliver on his promises. Verse 35b, remember he says, let's go over to the other side. He didn't say, hey disciples, hop in the boat, let's give it our best shot to get to the other side. When Jesus makes a promise to us, when he's spoken to your heart, when he's told you this is what he's going to do in your life, he will deliver on that promise. Sometimes that promise is taking you in some other direction that you didn't want to go or you don't understand at the time, but it all makes sense when you get past it. We need to, again, yield control to God and know that he will deliver on our promises. That's a scary thing. Just understand that God's past blessing on our life is not his last blessing on our life. Sometimes we look back and think, wow, God's got me here, but I don't know if he really realizes what I'm looking at right now. This is tough. He's ready to take you to that next step. You know what I think is interesting is the disciples were afraid even though they had Jesus in the boat and to that point they had already seen Jesus raise someone from the dead, heal the sick on several occasions and do myriad of other miracles. But it wasn't those that they rested on when they said, well this is a tougher one than that. I don't know if he's going to do it. Plus he's asleep. They still lost faith. That's a great example for us guys. We need to know that when God promises something, he didn't promise that he was going to get him across to the other side on smooth waters, but he did promise he'd get him across to the other side. And I can guarantee you they were better because of the trial that they went through in the middle of that lake than had he just taken them over without any issues whatsoever. And finally, when our faith in Jesus is shown to be real in our lives, it will directly affect and be seen by those around us. I might have misspelled that. Be seen by those around us. Verse 36b said, and there were other boats with them. Now Jesus didn't just calm the area around his own boat, which has been really funny probably, right? Everybody's struggling out there about 20 feet away, and you're like, too bad you're not in this one, right? He calmed the storm, and there were other boats with him. Why were there other boats around him? Because he's a curiosity to a lot of people. And they want to see what Jesus is all about. And they want to see what the people in the boat with Jesus are all about. What better way to show people in our lives what Jesus is all about by going to him, especially in a time of a storm, and having faith. So at this point, the disciples went to Jesus. He calmed the storm for all of the other boats. And because of the blessing upon their lives, people around him were blessed. But here is the catch. People in other boats, because they are around us and feeling blessed at times, might think that they're okay where they are. That was me. I hung out with Christians. If you hang out with Christians who don't do anything wrong, you don't do anything wrong, you feel pretty good about yourself. But I was not in the boat with Jesus. I was just kind of cruising right alongside. We need to recognize that. When I was going through my sickness, I had a teammate come up to me and 
meant a lot to me that he did just to come in and, and, and check on me and see how I was doing. And this guy was not a believer. This is a guy that I talked to on a myriad of occasions for five years at the University of Oregon about faith. We had some good conversations, and he was very curious, but he never gave his life, to my knowledge, before that point to the Lord. And I remember walking in right after I had my treatments, and I'm bald, and I'm 45 pounds underweight, and I still can't stand fully upright, and I'm walking in to go in and get a workout in with the uh, training staff. And he stopped me and just said, hey, Josh, how you doing? What's going on? And I said, you know what, Stefan, I'm so glad I have Jesus right now, because obviously I don't have a whole lot left. And we had a conversation about my faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes, Josh, the biggest thing I see in you is you were at the highest of highs and you still had your faith. And now you're at the lowest of lows and you still had your faith. I see a lot of people that are on one end or the other and don't have faith. And he goes, thanks for that. That's real faith. I don't see that a lot. And I don't know what happened to him, but the bottom line is he was one of the other boats. So what I want to leave you guys with is one of my favorite verses. If I was a tattooing man, I would tattoo this on my body somewhere. I'm not. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for, the, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Prosperity, guys, is not that he's going to keep you from cancer. Prosperity is the joy and the peace and the growth in your heart with Jesus Christ. That's what he cares about. And that word hope right there, guys, hope. Worldly hope, that word is skewed. Worldly hope means I hope Seattle wins the Super Bowl. I hope this old guy gets off the stage soon right? There's not a lot of certainty in there, right? That's just wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. If you don't remember anything from today, please remember this. Biblical hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, the uh, helmet of salvation is the hope of the coming Lord. The absolute expectation of the coming Lord. If you have hope in Christ, you know he's going to save you the way that he saved those disciples on the boat. You know that he's going to bring you to eternity. You know that you're going to have eternal salvation if you have Jesus Christ. That's the hope I want you guys to rest in. Amen. Let me pray real quick, and then I'm going to open it up for quick questions. I know we're a little bit long, and then uh, we'll be good. God, thank you for this group of men. Thank you for the special time you gave all of us. Thank you for um, the work that you've done in my life, Father, so I could share it with others. And thank you so much for the work you've done in other people's lives that I get to glean from, Father. So I pray today. If there's anybody in here, Lord, that is not completely in the boat with you, that doesn't know 100% if they're going to heaven, that today would be today, the day, Father, that they would confess that they're sinners, that they would ask you to be the Lord of their lives for rising from the dead for their sins, Lord. And today would be the day they would know for all of eternity they're going to heaven. And for the rest of us, Father, that constantly need encouragement because we get distracted by the storms and you seem to be sleeping at times, Father, we pray for greater faith. Help us to be stronger in you and weaker in and of ourselves so that we yield control to your Father in heaven who loves us more than we want to be loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys very much for your attention. Run.